0: Welcome to the Science & SaaS Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things science, fitness, and motherhood.
1: We're your hosts, Dr. Rachel Reed
0: and Dr. Brittany Masteller.
1: We both have PhDs in kinesiology and a passion for sharing science with the world.
0: We created this podcast to have unfiltered conversations about complex topics that we think deserve attention.
1: While listening, you can expect to learn everything from implementing the scientific method to raising little humans and how to keep your head above water through it all.
0: This podcast will cover three major topics exercise science, motherhood, and the fitness industry.
1: We firmly believe that science is for everyone, that coffee should only be drunk out of a mug, and that lipstick makes everything better.
0: go ahead and hit the subscribe button and make sure to join us every Monday for our conversation with your favorite PhD
1: Welcome back to the Science and SAS podcast. On today's episode, we're talking all about jobs that you can get with an exercise science degree. We know that many colleges and universities offer undergraduate degrees in exercise science, but there seems to be a lack of information available about what careers a person can move into with this degree. And it turns out that the careers you can have with a degree in exercise science are endless, especially with all of the creative ways we're seeing online careers and companies pop up these days. But we want to dive into this a little bit more and start by talking about some common careers that people with a bachelor's of science in exercise science actually go into. And I think when I think about exercise science, I have to remind myself that it's a very broad field. There are many like niches, if you will, within exercise science. And so I think this episode will be really enlightening for so many people who are considering going into this field or maybe who even have a degree in the field and are looking for information about potential next steps. So Britt, do you want to kick it off uh, by just talking about some of the common careers?
0: Sure. Yeah. So I for the purposes of this episode, there are one, two, three, there are six careers that we're going to be going over. Um, Now, obviously, there are more than this, but these are probably the most common that I've seen in students um, and that I've seen my peers pursue as well. But you'll notice what's not on here is pursuing um, like a a research master's or PhD. So Rachel and I have talked about that on other episodes, kind of our path to that and what that is Mm -hmm. like. But for the purposes of this episode, we're going to be talking about everything else besides that, which there are a ton of other things um, that you can pursue with a degree in exercise science. And many of them do require additional graduate work, but some do not. So we're going to get right into it. And um, the first one we're going to talk about is physical therapy. So uh, th- the te- The degree title for a physical therapist is a doctorate of physical therapy, a DPT. Now, there is also an option to be a physical therapist assistant, which is a PTA, mm-hmm. um, and that, is not, that does not require a bachelor's in exercise science, so that's something different, but for a doctorate in physical therapy, this is usually a three-year program, um, and this includes Uh, a didactic experience, as well as internships in specialized areas of physical therapy. So you'll notice that if you see a physical therapist for something specific, oftentimes they have additional training or perhaps have specialized in a specific area of physical therapy, um, which is also possible. So as an exercise science major, as an undergraduate, typically the curriculum in an exercise science bachelor's degree will include everything that you would need for a physical therapy program. So this would be your anatomy and physiology, one and two, with a lab most likely, Um, biology, chemistry, physics, psychology, statistics. These are a lot of the really common prerequisites um, that as a science major, especially as an exercise science major, would set you up really well to then pursue uh, physical therapy. Um, you do have to take the GRE as of now uh, to apply for physical therapy school. So for those of you who aren't familiar or maybe you are considering a a degree in exercise science and going eventually for a physical therapy degree, uh, the GRE is a generalized exam, a generalized like exam that you take for many graduate programs. And there are certain normative scores that you would need to get to apply to programs. So I Mm -hmm. think they changed it since we've taken it, Rachel. I don't even know what the scoring is now. I think it's more like the SAT now than it used to, than it was or something like that.
1: I think so too. And, And I am not super familiar with how the new scoring works, but yeah, that's exactly right. Like I know for Most physical therapy schools and actually even for master's and PhD programs in the field of kinesiology, you need a certain score on the math portion and then also on the writing portion so that uh, they can, you know, understand where your strengths and areas of, of opportunity are.
0: Yeah. So it's like the SAT for grad school, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the actual job and scope of practice of a physical therapist is to diagnose and manage movement dysfunction as well as enhance physical and functional abilities. So physical therapists restore, maintain, and promote not only physical function, but also optimal wellness and fitness and optimum quality of life as it relates to movement and health. So they, they can also prevent the onset, onset symptoms, and progression of, of impairments, functional limitations, and disabilities that might result from different diseases, disorders, conditions, or injuries. So there are many types of physical therapists um, that, you, that you might be familiar with yourself if you've ever had an injury such as you know, an ACL tear, which is a kind of a common injury for athletes. Um, I've talked on the podcast before about pelvic floor physical therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really specific to the pelvic floor, but there are physical therapists who focus on patients who have had strokes. Um, you know, there are pediatric physical therapists. There are a lot of different populations and um conditions that physical therapists can work with, which I think is really cool. And I that's the the part of the internships that, you know, kind of opens your eyes to what kind of setting that you'd be interested in working in, what types of patients you want to be dealing with, and those types of things. And I've actually met, you know, through Instagram, some physical therapists who have sort of started their own practice, um, which is really cool. So there are a lot of options uh, just even within physical therapy. But I think the field of physical therapy is changing quite a bit, actually. So I think, and sometimes it's still run this way where you kind of go in and you do, you know, your, your, <laughs> Um, prescribed sets and reps for your exercises and then you're given homework and then you go home. But um, I think one of the more valuable things about working with a physical therapist is they really do like a whole body examination and kind of help you, help you, help look at you as a whole and not just where you're injured Mm -hmm. to make sure that you're healing and really optimizing your movement and your health, which I think is really specific to physical therapists. Um, They're really, really great with anatomy and physiology, in particular anatomy, because they have to work with um, injuries and all those things so much. Um, so I think that is, if you really love anatomy and love studying anatomy, and that's what's something that you're good at, I think definitely physical therapy might be something that you're interested in, just because of the types of type of training that you need to do for that doctorate degree. Mm-hmm. Um so it is a doctorate. So when you're done, you are a doctor, but it's a DPT. Yeah. So that's physical therapy. Do you have anything to I add was, to that, Richard?
1: Yeah. I was just looking at, you know, the prereqs for PT school or most schools. And I think your comment – is really valuable that a lot of the classes that are required for even entrance into the exercise science major at colleges and universities are the same, you know, prereqs that are required for PT school. So exercise science is a science. I, I feel like, you know, if people aren't familiar, it maybe seems like, um, like an easy way out, like not taking biology major or something like that, but you are taking really tough classes in order to even get into the major in most cases. So I think that's a a cool takeaway there. I actually wanted to be a physical therapist, if you remember from one of our episodes. Yeah. I thought that that's really what I wanted to do, but I actually loved the exposure to research that I had gotten. And I know physical therapists can do research, of course, too, but usually that's like an on the side sort of thing um, in most work settings, right? Like there yeah. are obviously exceptions, and you can totally blaze your own path. But as a 23 year old trying to figure that out, I ended up going the research route. Okay, yeah. so occupational therapy is the next one. Britt, do you want to kick that one off?
0: Yeah. So when I was, you know, looking up information about occupational therapy there's basically two paths that you can take. You can get a master's degree in occupational therapy or you can get an occup- occupational therapy doctorate, which is an OTD. And depending on which path you choose depends on how the length of the program that you are attending. Um, so that varies quite a bit. O- uh, occupational therapy or OT is similar to physical therapy except for that there are, they are using everyday activities, so activities of daily living mm-hmm. to treat injured, ill, or disabled patients. So it's different than prescribing, let's say, like a workout routine or a specific you know, fitness regimen, which would be most sort of the scope of a physical therapist. Um, occupational therapists are really focused on therapeutic use of everyday activities. So these They can help patients develop, recover, and improve, as well as maintain the the skills that they need for daily living and or working. So, common occupational therapy interventions include helping children with disabilities participate fully in school and social situations, helping people recover from an injury and regain skills, and also providing support for older adults who might be experiencing physical or cognitive changes. So. As you can see from those examples, they're more specific to a lifestyle Mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily an injury, right? So um, it can be that partially, but more so like lifestyle-related things. Um, But the prerequisites for something like occupational therapy are similar. So anatomy and physiology, uh, probably more psychology courses like lifespan development, uh, psychology, sociology, abnormal psychology, as well as medical terminology, statistics, and a physics and or kinesiology course. So similar to uh, physical therapy, but with more psychology requirements, which I thought was interesting.
1: Super interesting. And I'm just sitting here as you're talking, kind of explaining the similarities and differences, thinking about all of the different settings that OTs or PTs might work in too, right? Because there are so many ways in which you could sort of, like, customize either career path for what you prefer, right? Like, you could totally work in a clinical setting as an OT or you could work in a school setting, right? Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of options even within those sort of, like, degree paths.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, to I think a lot – I think the track that you take, so a master's versus a doctorate, will also depend on kind of the settings that you – and the – independence that you have in relation to your occupational therapy career. Um, And you also do need to take a GRE for that uh, program as well.
1: Good point. I was thinking too, up until, I don't know what year it was when the master's in physical therapy sort of went away and was replaced or phased out by the DPT. Um, Do you know when that was, Britt? I feel like we should like ask some of our (laughs) DPT friends. I'm not
0: sure, but it, it wasn't that long ago
1: no, it wasn't that long ago. And so that's why sometimes, you know, I think in most states now you have to be at least pursuing your DPT to maintain your practice. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, But if you go to see a physical therapist, you might see, you know, a master's in physical therapy. Um, But of course, the doctorate in physical therapy is the the standard now.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So
1: that's changed over time, which is super interesting.
0: Yeah. And something too that I didn't have in my notes here, but that is an important thing to consider with both PT and OT, is uh, the GPA requirements. So Mm -hmm. for most graduate programs, you need at least a 3.0, usually a 3.2, and oftentimes much higher to be competitive. Um,
1: And that's hard with all those science classes because those science classes, at least for me we yeah. really tough.
0: They're tough. They're tough. Yeah. So, you know, that's an important factor too as far as getting into these programs. You need to have the prerequisites, but you often need to have really good grades in those prerequisites independent of your overall GPA. So a lot of times they'll look at your science GPA and then your overall GPA and to see how they compare. Um, so that's another thing too that I just wanted to mention. Um, I
1: completely forgot about that. I remember. Yeah. Um, I think well, mine was like I think my science GPA was like right on what they said was like the Yeah. like you need this or higher and I was like right on the cusp and I just remember being so nervous sending yeah. my stuff. So,
0: yeah, it's a it's really competitive. So stuff like that, like every little thing just feels very important. So if you're listening to this and you're you know, getting ready to apply to graduate school or considering one of these careers, it feels very, like, I get it. It's, it's very intense. And, you know, just at this point, though, you have what you have. So you know, make sure that your application everywhere else is really good. If you are on the cusp, like, let's make sure that everything else about your application is stellar Mm -hmm. so that, you know, it kind of balances out and hopefully you can get an interview, right? So those are all things to consider too. And what I always try to help my students remember, um, because I have a lot of students who have, you know, applied for graduate programs, you know, taken some gap years and then come back to apply and things like that. And they're always really nervous about it, but there's only so much you can do. You know, if you graduated already, you can't, unless you're retaking classes, you can't go back and yeah.
1: And do it over. Yeah. So those are both career paths where you certainly need advanced, like a terminal degree um, or a master's in OT, but personal training is not necessarily a career that you need a master's degree or higher um, in order to pursue. So let's talk about that one,
0: Britt. Yeah, so personal training is probably one of the careers that often comes to mind when people hear about a degree in exercise science. Um, you can certainly start personal training bef- when, like, without a degree in exercise science, there are plenty of certifications. Um, excuse me, that you can pursue without, you know, a bachelor's. But uh, the scientific rigor of an exercise science degree, obviously, is held to a higher standard than a a certification like an online personal training certification for example oftentimes exercise science courses will you not only will you get a really great background and solid basis for you to take a personal training exam but you will probably also have an internship of some sort um, as well as tons of coursework related to many areas of exercise science Um, so that's you know one advantage of having a bachelor's degree. Do you need one for personal training? No. Um, Certainly you do not, but I think the coursework can really be helpful. Um, If your end goal is personal training, uh, really focusing on getting those internships during your bachelor's degree would be really helpful and getting that experience in different types of settings too, so that you know kind of what types of clients you want to work at with, what types of facilities that you want to work with. And now we see that online personal training, especially with COVID has become, you know, very popular. So seeing if that's something that you want to do, um, things like that. But the first step is making sure that you have the prerequisites. So definitely a certification, um, there are a lot of certifications to choose from. I typically recommend to people the National Strength and Conditioning Association certifications. So either the Certified Personal Trainer exam, um, or the Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist exam, or the American College of Sports Medicine Personal Trainer exam. So I would say that those two organizations probably have the most, two of the, like the most rigorous Um, I agree. Right? Like as far as their reputation in the field of exercise science.
1: Yes. And I mean, there are, as you mentioned, there are so many other ones. I think, you know, if you're scoping around online for personal training certs or certs in general related to fitness that you're looking to secure, it's really important to make sure that they are approved by another body. So, uh, NCCA is one that, governs sort of a lot of um, certifications that fall in this personal training or group exercise instructor bucket. And what that's doing is making sure that the content is um, up to par, um, but also looking at the fairness of the exam. So it's looking at the psychometric properties of, of the exam and how that changes over time. So it's just a, a board that sort of holds the other certifying agencies accountable, which is really important. So- something yeah.
0: to, to look for. Yeah. And I think, I think it depends on what you do want to do with your personal training certification. I think if you are going to be in a certain setting, you might still need an additional certification specific to maybe group exercise or like a more specific population. But at the very least, a basic personal training certification um, is key. And to this I, just a side note, I know, like, I'm talking about personal training specifically here. If you want to do any type of nutrition coaching, um, that would be a separate certification, a separate bachelor's degree um, in exercise science. You do get some training in nutrition and metabolism things like that. But if you are interested in nutrition coaching, um,
1: that's a whole know, different thing. A whole to different to
0: thing. Yeah. That. It's a whole different thing. So. I know that might not seem really clear um, because I think scope of practice is a little bit blurry sometimes with training and exercise because so many people want both. Mm -hmm. So just be really clear what you want to be offering and making sure that your certifications match up with whatever you want to offer to clients. I
1: think that that is such an important message. We could actually probably do like a whole episode on the scope of practice of a personal trainer, um, <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> for sure. I I just wanted to add one note about certifications. Um, I know that there are different schools of thoughts on the content that's you know taught and expected to be learned and absorbed and applied from certification to certification, but. I don't think anyone can argue with the fact that one good benefit is that they require you to do continuing education in order to keep the certification over time. So yes. it is at least providing some foundational information and making sure that you spend at least a couple of hours learning new content in your field that's relevant and um, Every year, every couple of years. And now, hopefully, people are consuming a a lot more content way more regularly than just a couple of hours per year. But at a minimum, that's what the certifications require you to do. So I think that's a massive um, bonus.
0: Yeah. No, that's huge. And I think that that's, I think everyone benefits from that, not only the trainers, but also the clients, right? Like Mm -hmm. being able to. Keep up with current information and to any changes because every so many years there are like pretty significant changes as far as recommendations or science has, you know, collected a body of evidence that wasn't quite there when you took the certification, but now it's more complete and now they have a better recommendation. So it's important for trainers to keep up with that. So while, you know, you quote unquote only need a bachelor's, it, it it does have a big responsibility because no matter what career path you're choosing that we talk about today, you're dealing with someone's health on some level. Um, It might not be as a medical doctor, but still, if you are caring for someone's body and helping them in any aspect of their health, that is a very serious responsibility. And I think that, you know regardless of what you choose, an exercise science degree would prepare you for that um, above and beyond, you know, not having one. Mm -hmm. So I could not agree
1: more. Okay. So we've talked about three of our six careers so far. The fourth one is strength and conditioning. And I know, Britt, that there's been a pretty big shift in college athletics and in athletics in general to the point where, you know, a master's of science is preferred in this profession. So talk to us about that.
0: Yeah. So um, to be a strength and conditioning coach, like at the collegiate level, uh, we're seeing now, you know, master's degrees are going to be required for that. Now, you don't need a master's degree to take the certified strength and conditioning specialist exam. But if you're going into a graduate program, they want you to have it. So that way, while you're there in your graduate program, you can be helping as an assistant coach, uh, which obviously is a big responsibility and a big commitment. But with the the growth of that field and I think, you know, it's just it just has expanded quite a bit and includes a lot more teams regularly and year round. Um, So with that comes more responsibilities. They want people with master's degrees and it will certainly set you apart. But to take the certified strength and conditioning exam, that's one that you do need at least a bachelor's degree for. So that's like the bare minimum. And then the master's degree on top of that. Mm -hmm. So strength and conditioning coaches are typically, you know, I think of collegiate strength and conditioning coaches, but obviously in, for the really good ones, you could make it to like the professional athletes if you, you know, put in the time and the work to do that. But it's very competitive. Um, so having the bare minimum of a degree and a certification doesn't guarantee you a coaching position. You know, you need a lot of internships, several internships um, and a lot of hands-on experience with coaches who more who are more well established to really put you ahead in your career um, and it is really one of those careers where you just have to kind of put in the time um, and you know continue to get more experience continue coaching athletes I think some strength and conditioning specialists or coaches want to coach a specific type of athlete. So they might want to coach, you know, a sports specific athlete. They might want to coach a certain population, like only women, stuff like that. So all those internship experiences and all those mentorships that you have with the coaches who are more well-established will allow you to figure out what you want to do, which I think is, you know, really important. One cool thing though is it's not like, you have to specialize so much that you can't ever change. So, right. you know, there's room there to move around sh- should you choose to. Um, strength and conditioning coaches are responsible for conducting sports-specific testing sessions, designing of exercise programs, and implementing safe and effective strength training conditioning strength training and conditioning programs. Um, but also providing important guidance regarding nutrition and injury prevention. So this includes knowing when to refer out to team physicians, knowing when to refer out to an athletic trainer. Uh, Usually the strength and conditioning coach is kind of the the person in charge of of being aware of the athletes and where, where they need to go to address whatever concerns they might have that are beyond the scope of the strength and conditioning coach.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna add that my brother is actually um, a college football coach, and he obviously has worked alongside many strength and conditioning coaches who are, you know, up and coming. and And I know just from hearing his stories how competitive those roles are in general. I mean, I think there are a lot of individuals, men and women, who take. You know, graduate assistantship roles. Um, even if they already have a master's degree, just to get additional experience with another team. So these yep. are really, really competitive. Um, I'm sure, incredibly, you know, rewarding as well. But gosh,
0: yeah, so competitive. Especially like the D1 level, right? Yeah, D1 experiences are really tough to get. When I was at UMass, I know that that was, we didn't have, we had a kinesiology major, but it wasn't a strength and conditioning focused mm-hmm. program, but we were D1. So when it came to athletics, a lot of people chose UMass because of that. Um And we did have a strength coach, but they weren't, we didn't have a strength conditioning undergraduate program, which I thought was more interesting. And I bet that will change over time, but um, yeah. I'm
1: trying to think about University of Georgia definitely has a master's track that's focused on strength and conditioning, mm-hmm. which I think was new ish when I was going through. I can't remember when it popped up, but yeah, I agree with you. As far as the undergrad programs, it didn't have like a special track for that, it had one yeah. for athletic training and one for like sort of more general kinesiology. But
0: yeah, because I think that speaks to how much that field has changed too. Yeah. So, um, certainly the, that that is changing. So if you're interested in that, pursuing that as a career, just make sure that you are choosing a university that is in line with what you want to do if you don't have any interest in pursuing a master's because most exercise science programs are very, they cover a lot of different information. So it's a very, a lot of breadth and then you do get to choose some electives based on your specific interests.
1: Yeah, exactly. So speaking of undergraduate programs and graduate programs clinical exercise physiologist is our next sort of like job category this is actually one that I thought maybe would be a good fit for me as well because I love working one-on-one with people um but again I ended up really liking the research route which which is why I stuck it out so uh Let's talk about clinical exercise physiologists. This is something that you can have a bachelor's of science and or a master's of science, but that you might be, you know, a little bit limited in your scope um, with just a bachelor's degree, right? So let's talk about this one.
0: Yeah. So you can practice as an exercise physiologist. You can sit for the exam with just a bachelor's degree, but you will not be able to um, advance I guess, or have a more senior role in a clinical exercise physiology facility without a master's degree. So to get a master's degree, it's one to two years. um, And then you also need on top of that clinical care hours under advisement of a senior level exercise physiologist slash medical professional staff. So typically what that entails is after you finish your degree and and then uh, take your ACS the ACSM is the the boarding the governing organization that gives the certified sort of exercise physiologist exams called this ASC ACSM CEP can't talk today <laughs> um, so with a masters in a, rel- a related field you need about you need 600 hours minimum of direct patient care with a bachelor's in related field, you need twelve hundred hours of direct patient Holy care.
1: Cow.
0: Yeah, so you do need more hours if you only have a bachelor's degree versus a master's degree. Now, like I said, there are certain limitations, and a lot of this has to do with pay and what you're able to do. I I believe, and I'm not a hundred percent certain on this, but I believe a lot of the limitations surround uh administering um, stress test protocols. That's and, what I was thinking too. Yeah. And what your role can be with that if you have a master's degree versus a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, a few podcasts ago, we interviewed Monique Middlecoff who has her PhD in exercise physiology as well. And she oversees one of these types of clinics. So the people who are coming into an exercise, a clinical exercise physiology setting are typically people who are sick. They've had some sort of cardiac event, like a heart attack yeah, where so they're they
1: risk, they're
0: very high risk and it's very serious, um, so you really have to be on top of it. You have to know how to read an ECG. You have to know how to administer an ECG, how to do a stress test, like, like clockwork, right? Um, so it's a very, uh, high stress and really important job. It's, it's very serious. So that's why there is so much focus on all these direct patient care hours.
1: And those are tough to get. I actually just did some quick math, but if I'm correct, I think that's like 30 weeks of, you know, patient care, care hours. And just so you guys know, I mean, sometimes you can find internships that are paid, but I mean, by and large, these are volunteer hours and, um, you know, a lot of physical therapy programs also want you to have hours, which is sort of the route that, um, I was intending to go, and I had so many unpaid internships, or where mm-hmm. I was volunteering in the hospital, shadowing, trying to get the numbers up there. I mean, it is—it's it's hard. A, it's a grind to it's get hard. that many hours. Yes,
0: it's hard. And what I know, so in my master's program, a lot of people chose to chose the route of the clinical exercise physiologist after we were done, and because they had a bachelor's in a related field, they were able to work at some sort of facility, not as an exercise physiologist necessarily, but to get the direct patient care hours and use that towards when they did go to take their CEP. So that's that's also sometimes an option too, depending on where you're working and depending on the program. So, and this um,
1: exam is hard, Yeah. by the way, this certification exam is very hard and it needs to be, as you said, because the stakes are quite high. This is very different than personal training and apparently healthy person who doesn't have a lot of chronic conditions, right? This is yeah. a very different game.
0: And I know some universities require you to take the exam before you graduate.
1: Yeah, I think and that's pass it. Common,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, you have to take it and pass it before you can graduate. So that's, a, I think that's a that can be a good thing because it kind of forces you to study and take it when it, everything's fresh, <laughs> but. Um, Yeah, so that's clinical exercise uh, physiologist. And then we have one last area, one last career, which is physician assistant, which is actually, I know Rachel wanted to be physical therapy. I wanted to do physician assistant, actually. That's what I originally went to undergrad for. And many of my friends are physician assistants now. um, And it was kind of a newer career. It was very up and coming whenever I was going into college. So by the time I, when I entered undergrad versus the time that I was leaving undergrad, it was so much more competitive. Like getting into physician assistant school is, is really competitive. Um, probably even more so now, but, um, it's a two year program, typically a little over two years straight through, um, including, You know, lecture based content as well as rotations in different areas, similar to some of the other medical type professions. The prereqs include chemistry, biology, physiology, microbiome, anatomy, and physiology. Um, And this can vary a little bit depending on the program. So, by and large, they'll require some sort of psychology class as well and a a statistics class too. So, very much a science based curriculum where i went to undergrad it actually was a pre physician assistant track so oh, wow. you like took all the classes related to what you needed to get into pa school and they were very similar like we had a pre physician assistant a pre ot a pre pt and you know the the core of the curriculum was the same with different electives basically um, that makes sense. so okay. a lot of heavy sciences, um, lots of labs, lots of labs, also lots of classes with labs. Um, pretty much every semester that you're in school, you have at least one science in a lab, sometimes two. Um, it's very competitive. Like I was saying, you need a lot of volunteer hours. So 1500 patient care hours, which is wow. insane. You get to like start as soon as you're a freshman, basically to accumulate all of those um, because wow. it, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. So 1500 hours, minimum GPA is typically a 3.0, but a, the average GPA for admittance is closer, at least to 3.5. I would, I would argue that most of the time it's higher. Um, and that's for, crazy
1: with all of those tough science classes and their lab classes. Yeah. Uh,
0: so. Yeah. Yeah, it's really competitive. Um, It's a great career if that is something that you're interested in, but it's definitely um, not. You can't slack on your undergraduate curriculum if you have intentions of going to PA school because you do need a certain GPA to get in. Um, You need to take the GRE and be get a minimum a certain minimum score on the different sections of the GRE as well. So PAs are medical professionals who diagnose illness. They develop and manage treatment plans. They prescribe medications and they often serve as a principal healthcare provider. So they could be who you see for your healthcare. I know I see a PA. Um, I do too. Yeah. And I, I love the practice that I go to. They do practice underneath a, a medical doctor. Yeah. So that is the difference, I guess, between a medical doctor and a PA. Um, Obviously, this is less schooling, but many people prefer to choose the physician assistant route because you can change specialties much easier than in medicine. So I know for a lot of my friends, that was what was really appealing to them about this career was that they could do a certain specialty for five years and then switch. so there's a lot more lateral movement that way. If you want to okay. change specialties after you are certified through the board, so after you go through PA school, you have to be, you know, certified. It's you get a medical license, and you have to, you know, recertify every year, a couple of years, or whatever, um, just like any other medical professional. But it's significantly less schooling, and um, you do have to practice. Underneath a like medical, like a medical doctor, but you are still a healthcare provider. It's similar to nurse practitioner, I would say. Which I didn't add nursing on here, but that's an, also another one that oftentimes um, I'm finding that people who went to school for kinesiology or exercise science end up going back to school for nursing and getting either a accelerated bachelor's and masters in like two or three years or something like that. So. That's another just example of a career path that lends itself to more of a medical profession versus a exercise science related field. I see a lot of crossover to nursing.
1: That's, I mean, that's awesome to think about, nurses being educated in exercise science, just another healthcare provider who has, you know, more training about the importance of movement and how that can impact your health. So I love hearing that. Okay, so that was a whirlwind. We talked about six different, well, sort of seven, six and a half different career paths uh, that you could take if you have a bachelor's degree in exercise science, or maybe you are thinking about getting a bachelor's degree in exercise science. Many of them do require additional education, but of course, there are a couple that do not. Um, So all just important information to know. I feel like when I was an undergraduate, I really... And maybe it was because this is the way UNC Chapel Hill was structured. I really just felt like the track was physical therapy school. That was sort of what we were being trained to go into. And so I had a hard time figuring out other paths, right? I knew, of course, that there was research. I knew there was PT school. But I didn't realize that all of these classes and the coursework and the volunteer hours and experience could apply in all of these different directions. So I think this is a super helpful resource to have it all in one place.
0: Yeah. So if this was helpful, please let us know by sending us a message on Instagram or sharing this podcast and tagging us in your stories. We'd love to hear what you got from the podcast and if it did help you.
1: Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Make sure you subscribe so that you never miss a Science and Sass podcast episode. We will see you next time.
0: Bye.